Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We've got the informative, insightful, and delightful Tom Hartman back today for Spirit in Action, and we'll be discussing his newest book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. It's always a pleasure to have Tom on, combining as he does incredible acumen with the ability to tell a story simply and powerfully. Tom's daily three-hour radio program is the number one progressive talk show of the nation, and his writing is equally stellar, discussing the issues and telling the important stories that affect most of us profoundly. Certainly, health care is big, or will be big, in all of our lives at one time or another, so I'm very pleased to welcome Tom Hartman here today to discuss the hidden history of American health care. Tom, it's wonderful to have you back again for Spirit in Action. Hey, Mark. Thank you for having me. It's always nice talking with you. So you're always writing ahead by quite a bit for these books. You know, you're really putting this book together at the time that the election has was coming up between Joseph Biden and Donald Trump. Yeah. The fact that Joe Biden won, does that change your prognosis for health care in the USA? No, the structural problems, the causal problems, the opposition problem, all the people who profit off American sickness, basically, and disease and death, all of those things are still there. We at least have a president who is not hostile to the idea of everybody having health care. He was a big fan of Obamacare, as imperfect and kind of Rube Goldberg as that was. At least it was a start. And had the Supreme Court not gutted the Medicaid expansion and had the Supreme Court not done away with the individual mandate, it would have actually led to every American having health insurance. We still have about uh, 25, 30 million people who don't have access to health care right now because they have no health insurance or, the, or its equivalent. So I'm a little more optimistic that something can get done. And Biden is getting more progressive by the minute, as is Congress, because the people of America have been there for about a decade or two. <laughs> But whether it's going to you know, magically solve any problems or not, I'm not expecting instant results. If we're going to have Medicare for all or some variation on that, like every other developed country in the world does, it's going to be a fight. You delve into all the details in the book. I, mean, I guess not all of them, of course, but a lot of them, including the number of times in the history of the U.S. when we might have gone to every person being covered by national health care. Interesting point. And you talk about Biden getting more liberal by the moment. One of the things that's maybe making more liberal is when the other side is so steadfastly against you that you're not trying to invite them into a coalition. When you give up on them, then you can go ahead and say, okay, well, we're just going to do it the right way. And I guess we'll have to do it without you. So my thought is that he's getting more liberal in part because the Republicans have been so adamant against anything, even sensible compromise. It could be. I think, though, that he's just following the opinion polls. You know, the majority of Americans have wanted a national health care system since the 60s. That number has been incrementing upward steadily, particularly since the Obamacare debates, you know, about a decade ago. 
and in, in other areas as well. I mean, you know, whether it's student debt or whether it's raising taxes on rich people or whether it's stabilizing and, and actually strengthening Social Security or Medicare in all of those large areas or obviously the, you know, the infrastructure thing that's going on right now in every single one of those areas. I think he's just reading the polls. It's a bigger motivation for him than fighting Republicans. Frankly, I think Joe Biden's instinct is to try to you know, have lunch with Republicans. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. One thing that we should clear up before we delve into all this detail is any of your biases. We all have biases. The only difference is whether we can see our biases and if we can incorporate them into a bigger picture. You have a PhD in homeopathy and a master's degree in herbal medicine. So does that put you on a certain place in the healthcare debate in the United States? No, not really. I mean, back in the early 70s, myself and my business partner owned an herbal tea company. And so I took a couple of mail order courses to get those degrees. I've never claimed to be a homeopath or an herbal doctor. I was fascinated by both in the 70s. And, uh, you know, we sold that company in 76 and, and I haven't looked back. I'm a fan of regular, normal allopathic medicine, as well as a fan of what's now increasingly called complementary medicine. Uh, we used to call it natural medicine or natural health. With the exception of a little bit of fish, probably about once every other month, I'm a vegan. I don't eat dairy products and things like that. I haven't for years. I've been a vegetarian since I was 16. You know, those are my health biases, but they're largely personal. I don't try to inflict any of that on anybody in this book. But those behaviors on your part, those proclivities on your part, do come in part from a worldview. And a worldview, I think, by the way, that I share. I've only been vegetarian since I was 21, so I'm trying to catch up with you. But I think that in part, that reflects the ability that each of us has to deal with our own health that there are behavior things that are some of the biggest factor in terms of healthcare. And of course, I think the opponents of national healthcare like to point that we have to get people motivated individually. So I'd like to keep that in mind as we talk about more of the pros and cons of the national healthcare system. I think there's an opposite argument to be made too. Yeah, what's that? When I was in Denmark doing my show from Denmark, I had a whole series of conservatives on the air, and I would always ask them, you know, what do you think about healthcare? You're a conservative. You must want to do away with Denmark's national healthcare system. And they would always go, what? What are you talking about? Are you crazy? But um, one of them, who was a, a member of the parliament, actually made a point to me. We were talking about they had just uh, changed the streets in Copenhagen so that a whole bunch of them were bicycle only which didn't seem like a very conservative position to me either, you know, given American politics. But he was one of the leaders of the conservative movement in parliament. It turned out conservative in Denmark means they don't like immigrants. That's all it is. Basically. Oh. <laughs> in any case. So I said, you know, why do you like the bike lanes? And he said, because it'll lower my taxes. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, the more people ride their bikes, the healthier they are. The healthier they are, the less we all pay for health care. So when you have a national health care system, it actually incentivizes the government to do things that incentivize or help people to be more healthy, which is kind of the opposite of the conservative argument is, you know, why am I paying for, why don't, you know, if you, we go to a national health care system, that means that I have to pay the health care expenses of some guy who weighs 500 pounds or smokes three packs a day, you know, or drinks too much. 
And the easy answer is that, uh, I mean, talk to citizens of any country with a national healthcare system. They have aggressive stop smoking programs. They have aggressive weight control and diabetes control programs. They do things to encourage health. And so it becomes a virtuous cycle rather than a destructive one. And in the U.S., as you say, the conceptualization of what conservative means often means this kind of freedom. You can't tell me I can't smoke cigarettes anywhere and I can blow the smoke in your face. Or the COVID virus, as the case may be. Uh, yes, exactly. The same point. So, yeah, I think these things do mean different things in different countries. The thing I'd like to start out with, and again, when Tom Hartman starts out the book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. The key point to start out with is how bad the U.S. is compared to other countries that have national health care. There's so many directions that you can and do approach it from in the book. What were the top points you'd like people to hear on Spirit in Action? The very top of the list is the number of families who are destroyed every year by a lack of access to health care or good health care or comprehensive health care. And I'm not just talking about the unnecessary deaths, although those are estimated by Harvard University to be between 20 and 45,000 a year, or the unnecessary morbidity, the sickness and disease and crippling and whatnot, which is probably in the hundreds of thousands to millions of people every year, but just money. Up until uh, the year before last, we were averaging around a half a million people every year in America go bankrupt because somebody got sick in their family. That's a half a million families who lose their homes, who lose their credit, who lose their jobs, whose lives are wiped out or damaged in ways that can take not just years, in some cases, take generations to recover from. Half a million families. Last year, it looks like it was around 750,000. Apparently, COVID was causing a lot of medical bankruptcies. People would go to the ER and then end up with a $300,000 bill and have no way to pay it. It looks like for this year, for 2021, we may well be on track for a million bankruptcies, medical bankruptcies in the United States. The total number of families who got wiped out, people whose credit was destroyed, people who you know, lost their jobs, people who ended up just destitute. The total number of medical bankruptcies in Canada, England, or the United Kingdom, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, France, Spain, Germany, and I could go on. It's it's 34 OECD countries. In all of those countries, except the United States, the total number combined of all those countries last year was zero. Doesn't happen. So if nothing else, you would think that that would point out to us how, I mean, having a half a million families destroyed every year by a predatory industry, I would think would cause at least some Americans to wake the heck up. Yeah, it's crazy to think about that. The the overall picture, you mentioned it from several different points of view throughout the book, how much of our GDP in the U.S. goes for healthcare. At one point, you say 24%, I think it was 17%, another point in the different years and different numbers get totaled. So 24%, one out of $4 essentially that's spent in this country is for healthcare. Unfortunately, and this has everything to do with the books you've written previously, Tom, about how our voting system is controlled, how our economic system is controlled, all of that. That is a very strong financial interest for some people to make sure our system doesn't get better. They want us to have the sickest healthcare system in the world because that's lying in their pockets. That's absolutely right. Well, under Obamacare, they lowered the percentage that health insurance companies could stick in their own pockets. 
It used to be, you know, prior to Obamacare, some health insurance companies were taking 30, 35, um, in one case, almost 40% of the money that came in and distributing it to their shareholders and their executives. Obamacare capped that at 20%. So (laughs) the maximum overhead now, you know, non-administrative overhead of these health insurance companies is now 20%. The overhead for Medicare itself, the the Medicare system, depending on how you calculate it, at its best is 1%. That's if you don't include the cost of the federal buildings where Medicare staff work, if you just assume that that's all been paid for long ago and all the costs associated with that. If you include all the secondary and tertiary overhead costs, at the very worst, Medicare is costing us 3% of healthcare dollars, as opposed to 20% for the for-profit insurance industry. And so, you know, the average American family is spending a couple thousand dollars a year on healthcare that doesn't get spent by average families in any other country in the world. And it's all going to the stockholders, you know, which is more than half of all stock in America is on the top 1%. It's all going to the stockholders and the executives and people like Dollar Bill McGuire, the guy who was the last CEO or the next to the last CEO at United Healthcare, who walked away with $1.6 billion in his own pocket. It certainly puts lie to the very commonly believed lie that government is the least efficient way of getting things done. It can obviously be very effective. And I'm not saying that I've never encountered a a governmental institution that was ineffectual or slow or in some ways not responsive. I've seen that personally, but compared to what happens, I actually, I got just noticed this past week, I have a heart medication that I just started a couple of weeks ago. So I was supposed to renew my prescription and they weren't going to renew it till a few days later. So I should make a separate trip in, but I, it actually was going to run out because the doctors had told me to take one and a half of them. For some reason, the insurance company says, no, we won't pay it. You can't renew it yet. Of course, that's just part of the ineffectual part of because for every dollar they don't reimburse for insurance, that's money in their pocket. It's true. This is how they make their money. It's called the medical loss ratio or MLR. Basically, it's how much money can we skim off the top and by hook or by crook. I mean, you know, by telling people, no, we're not going to pay for that procedure. No, we're not going to pay for that medication. We're going to make you jump through five hoops to get that. We're going to pass through billing to you for whatever, you know, deductibles or office visits or whatever, and hope you don't notice it or that you pay without fighting us. I don't think there's an American family who's not dealt with these, trying to use language that you can use on the radio. (laughs) You just say bleep, I'll know what it means. There you go. These bleeps, yeah. Well, the case where you cited that 24% of our GDP was going to healthcare costs, you were comparing that to Taiwan and you said when they went, and this was what, under a dictatorship still, or, you know, before they had democracy, that it was 6% when they went for national healthcare, because it's the one thing that made best sense, right? It was going to be the most efficient. And they have the most effective healthcare system in the world, in part because it was put into place without a lot of debate. But they hired an American professor who had come to Taiwan. He was married to a Taiwanese woman, and he had come to Taiwan to speak at a conference. And he uh, just kind of offhandedly talked about the benefit of a single-payer healthcare system. A few months later, he got a call from the government saying, would you come over here and create it for us? And so he did. And it saved them from COVID, by the way, because everybody in the country has a little card, like a credit card, or more like a driver's license as a photo on it that they can use to get healthcare, they can use to pay for their drugs, but it also is one giant national database with everybody's health conditions. And so 
when they needed to do contact tracing and testing for COVID, they were on top of it. They had one of the best outcomes in the world for the first year. Now, you said that the Affordable Care Act, uh, Obamacare, that I think the companies were limited to 20% overhead, that if they're going to be part of the national system for that. You said that doctors in the U.S., typically, I guess, spend 12% of their total billings on getting reimbursed. And mind you, because I've worked as a software company for 30, 40 years, I actually have helped companies coding the kind of requirements. So I, I actually know how bad it is on the other side. And you just said that for Medicare, the, the rate is maybe 1%, 3% for overhead, right? Yeah, it's between 1% and 3%. I think the examples in the book, if it's not my bad, but... You'll have um, to rewrite the book, I guess. <laughs> there was a, a fascinating story in the New York Times a couple of years ago where there was a hospital in New York City, and I think it was Einstein, I could be wrong. And it was almost the exact same number of beds as a hospital in Toronto or Montreal. I think it was Toronto. So they did a comparison between these two hospitals. And what they found was that the one in New York had an entire floor with desks and staff devoted just to billing. And the one in Toronto had like two or three people in one room doing all the billing for the entire. I know I do tell a story in the book about when we lived in Washington, D.C., my doctor there was telling me a story about a, she was very frustrated one day. One of her friends was a, uh, a hepatologist, I think it's called, a liver doc. This is about a decade ago. It was when the new anti-hepatitis C drugs were just coming out. And they were like $80,000 for a course of treatment. And he had hired two full-time nurses whose only job, medical professionals, whose only job was to continually rebuild the health insurance companies. Because what they had found was a fourth or fifth or sixth time that they submitted the bill was when the insurance companies paid. And by delaying, if you die soon enough, then maybe you won't be able to follow up with your claim. And that is what happens in some cases. It's pretty horrible. Oh, absolutely. There's a whole lot of detail that we're not going to discuss today with Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman from his book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. You were just talking about dealing with hepatitis, the new drugs that come out from that. Some people have made out the pharmacy industry in the United States to be the biggest villains. How bad would our costs of our healthcare look if we split out pharma? I don't have that data right off the top of my head, Mark. I'm sorry. But it is a pretty bad, it's glaringly bad, I think, in some cases. Isn't we pay it? more than twice as much for pharmaceuticals as, for example, Canada. A large part of that is, is Medicare. Medicare overpays for pharmaceuticals to the tune of around $60 billion a year. Because when George W. Bush, when he reformed Medicare, they did two things. They created a privatized option for people that they call Medicare Advantage, but it's not actually Medicare. People on Medicare Advantage who are over 65 are at huge risk because they want them as customers for the first five or 10 years when they're relatively young and healthy. But once they start pushing their late 70s or early 80s, they will do everything they can to get rid of people and start refusing to pay things. And it gets really, really gnarly. But then the other thing that they did is they expanded this drug coverage, this uh, Medicare Part D, you know, complete with the donut hole. But in the process of doing that, they said, you know, we, the, we will force Medicare to pay for your drugs if you're on Medicare, but Medicare cannot negotiate drugs. They have to buy every drug at full retail. So, you know, if you go in and you buy, you know, one tablet of Cipro, you know, an antibiotic, it might cost you a dollar at retail. 
But I guarantee you when the army buys it, they buy a million of them a year and they're paying 10 cents or five cents or three cents. You know, so our military expense, what the military pays for pharmaceuticals is a fraction of what Medicare pays for pharmaceuticals. And of course, people over 65 take a lot more drugs than do 20-year-olds in the army. Right now, the pharmaceutical industry, pharma is the trade association for big pharma. They are fighting like tooth and nail to prevent Joe Biden. And this is part of this new excuse me, infrastructure bill will allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. And it'll save you and me. It'll save all of us $60 billion a year, but it will reduce the profits of the pharmaceutical industry by $60 billion a year. And they're not happy about that, but it's all profit. It's pure gravy for them. And the real interesting thing about that, Tom, is that a real conservative should say, of course, we want our government to be efficient and to work in the interests of the people. So therefore, of course, they're going to negotiate for these prices. But you'll find those same people self-labeled as conservatives saying, no, we can't do that. We have to protect private industry. Yeah. If you believe the conservative means actually concerned about you know government spending and things, my experience increasingly is that what I learned about conservatives in Denmark a decade ago is true of conservatives here in the United States, that most of their issues have to do with race. Even the healthcare one, which was the big aha for me, it's the entire second part of the book. When I started doing the research on why we don't have a single-payer healthcare system, I was just absolutely astonished. There were two really big aha moments for me in reading The Hidden History of American Healthcare. One of them was about Medicare Advantage because I am 67 years old. Therefore, I know that I have to deal with this and I've got this letter and people want to charge me this way and that way. And so I have a Medicare Advantage plan. That's why you're dealing with those things. I'm on regular Medicare. I got no co-pays. I got no nothing. Never do anything, never see anything. Well, that's also because you're smarter than I am and better well-read. As we can see in all those books behind you, you're well-read and it, that does make a difference. But well, I was, I was lucky that I, I have you know, friends who are physicians who warned me away from Medicare Advantage before, when I turned 65 uh, five years ago. So explain the difference there. You're just on Medicare and you say you don't have to pay this and that and the other thing. What's that about? Right. Medicare was created in the 60s. I think it was 67 by Lyndon Johnson and, and the Democrats. It basically covers everything. They negotiate in bulk with doctors and they create standards for payment. So Medicare providers have to charge within certain ranges, but everybody knows the rules of the game right up front. And there's none of this, oh, you you want us to pay for that? BS uh, that I used to deal with when I had health insurance before with uh, United Healthcare Blue Cross. The one small problem with regular Medicare other than that you have to pay for it, although you can have it automatically deducted from your social security, is that when it was passed, in order to get it passed, Lyndon Johnson, as a concession to the Southern Democrats, put this hole in Medicare where it only pays for 80% of all expenses. So there's an additional 20% of hospital and physician expenses that are not covered by Medicare. But what they did was they established very stringent, rigorous, channel-locked guidelines about for insurance companies saying you may sell a policy to fill this 20% gap, they're called Medigap policies, but you may not play these following games with people and you must pay for these things. And it's all completely transparent. It's all right on the front end. There's about a half a dozen different Medigap A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. Each one is slightly different. They get more expensive. You know, the one I have is the H policy or the F policy. And it basically covers everything. There's zero deductible, 
no copays, no deductibles, no BS. I've had two surgeries since I went on this program. I get an annual physical. I take a medication for my blood pressure. I never see a bill. I've never had to deal with anybody on the billing. It's wonderful. It's just that I have to pay every month a couple hundred bucks to a health insurance company for that Medigap policy. The ones that have deductibles are a little less expensive. So therefore, we have to see the difference between Medigap policies and Medicare Advantage policies, right? But the problem is that Medicare Advantage is not regulated like the Medigap policies are. It is regulated, but nowhere near as tightly. And so they can pull bait and switches on you. They can start denying coverage as time goes on. The main thing that they do, and I talk about it in the book, is called cherry picking and lemon dropping. And cherry picking is they go out of their way to offer things to get young, healthy people in. Oh, we'll give you vision. We'll give you dental. We'll give you $100 a month in cash. But once those people turn 70 or 75 and they start kicking up a few thousand dollars a year or tens of thousands of dollars a year in medical expenses, then they go from cherry picking to lemon dropping, which is drop this lemon. Then they start making it really hard for people to get their bills paid. And, oh, we, we lost that uh, invoice. And, oh, it's going to take another three months. We've got to examine it. And they just start playing all these BS games with people in order to try to force them back onto regular medicine. And so you talk about those two things, the cherry picking and lemon dropping. There is also the thing that you mentioned in the book, which is this seemed pretty incredible to me. Essentially, they're taking people on as their clients and then billing Medicare for. They don't even bill Medicare. They get they get a, a bulk payment per person. It, it doesn't matter if you're an inexpensive customer or a very expensive customer. They get the same amount of money per person from Medicare, which, by the way, is more than Medicare pays for my expenses. Right. When somebody goes on Medicare Advantage, it actually drains money out of the Medicare system faster than if they had gone on Medicare. And that's why they do the cherry picking and lemon dropping is because they get the money whether you cost them anything or not. So they have a huge incentive to bring in young people and push out old people. But do you get the doctors or, or representatives of the company who come to your house who do a little survey with you, check a few things so that they can bill more? You explain this in the book. Yeah, this is a gimmick that the the Medicare Advantage people will do because this is part of their cherry picking process. They will say, oh, we want to serve you better. So, you know, when you start your policy with us and there's this window of time during which they can drop you without penalty on either side. When you start your policy with us, we're going to send a nurse to your home who's going to take blood from you. And we're going to find out if there's anything that we need to attend to so that we can make an appointment with your physician and make sure that you're healthy. And what they're really looking for are sick people so that they can make it really difficult for them to sign up because they don't want to be having sick people on Medicare Advantage. But you'll explain in the book also about if people are rated as a greater danger, they can bill more, you know, that they're worse health care. Oh, yeah, that's that's the other part of it. Yes. And over time, they will, again, try to get rid of those people. But in order to get more money out of Medicare, they will say, if your blood pressure is two points below what should be a concern, they'll rate it as if it were way above that. I mean, there's these broad guidelines that they use, and they use this to basically twist more money out of Medicare. Folks, we have Tom Hartman here today. Tom is the number one progressive radio person out there. How does that feel? You know, I'm the biggest frog in a very little pond. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think overall, though, you're like number eight of all radio broadcasters. So, you know, eight, that's a pretty big pond. Yeah, it's 
I have to say, I was on vacation a couple of weeks ago, just talking with a person up by Lake Superior, just had a chat. And when he heard that I had voted for Biden and thought Biden was sufficiently better than Donald Trump to move mountains, he became my instant friend. So he started talking about a number of things. And he said, the thing that really changed my mind back in 2004, when he went from being a Rush Limbaugh listener to a completely different way of thinking was Tom Hartman. Oh, really? Yes, I'm doing some good. Boy, you're doing good, yes. And and he was championing your voice because you make such a difference. And that's the kind of thing that Tom Hartman does. Every day, he puts his lifeblood not only into writing books like The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich, three hours a day during the week, you're on the radio. And I think this only scratches some of the surface. You did tell me in previous interviews with you, Tom, that you do have some moments when you relax, you actually kick your feet up for what, 45 minutes a day or something. You're a hard worker and it shows in the product that you put out. So just remember, check out Tom Hartman. You can find him a thousand different places on Sirius XM radio satellite. He's a New York Times bestselling author, 30 some books at this point and more coming out. We'll talk to him again in six months on his next one, which is about the hidden history of Big Brother, about corporate and government snoops. We're going to find out about that, but just whet your appetite. That's coming maybe six months from now. He's here today for Spirit in Action. Our website, northernspiritradio.org. We have links to all of our guests from the past 16 years, including our previous interviews with Tom Hartman. Come to our site, post comments, find the stations where we're carried. And your comments really are important to us. We really value connection. This is about listening to people individually, not just one size fits all, as so many radio stations do. We also have a donate button on our page, and that's how you support this full-time work. It's not corporations. It's not government funding us. It is because of you. And I think Tom could probably make a good case for us not depending on corporations or government for our funding for our radio program. Do you want to say a word about that, Tom? Because your previous books, I know that that's got to be a direction you lean. Yeah, independent media is the lifeblood of a democracy. We have to have independent media if we're going to you know, retain or acquire any semblance of democracy. In fact, supporting where you're getting your information is a really important thing to do, particularly if it's nonprofit like your show is. And so please do support the community radio stations who carry Spirit in Action, Song of the Soul, both of the Northern Spirit radio programs, and reach out and support them as well as us. So again, back with Tom Hartman. And by the way, for folks who don't know it, Tom is spelled with T-H. So I imagine most of your life, people have been calling you Thom. I mean, did you go that just to be distinctive? You know, I think I was 11 or 12 years old when I started spelling my first name that way. And it was because I was a big fan of Thomas Edison. Turned out I had misread something. He always spelled his name T-H-O-S. And somehow I thought it was T-H-O-M. And I think I've been 11 years old. I was probably confusing it with Tom McCann, the shoe company that was all over the place in the 1950s and early 60s. But in any case, I just, you know, I thought it was nice. And I'm, now it's all over the place. I mean, you've got, you've got a United States senator who spells his name that way. Are you any wiser than you were at that age? I, I don't know what age you were exactly <laughs> when you were idealizing Thomas Edison. I was 11. I, I, I think I'm smarter. I think I'm wiser and smarter. My sense of wisdom is that it's the intersection or the synthesis or the synergy of experience and learning. 
the reason I ask is I just read a book about Tesla and Nikola Tesla, from all indications, was not near as practical or, and not as good and dirty at business as Thomas Edison, but he was a, a true genius. So do you come down Edison or Tesla these days? I love them both. I've done a lot more deep dive into Edison's biography than Tesla's, but I have read pretty extensively about Tesla's life too. Tesla was struggling. You know, I mean, Edison probably was a little ADHD or a little Aspie. Tesla was like way out there on the spectrum. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the points I wanted to go back to, you mentioned something about this when Medicare is being designed, the 20% you can charge people because you had to have skin in the game. That's how you label it. That was in the, the theory. Yeah. yeah. Most of us, that makes some sense skin in the game. So I should be motivated to take care of my health and to do some oversight so that the hospital doesn't charge me for an extra day there, et cetera. Right. Give me the pros and cons of skin in the game. Well, it was really an excuse to make sure that genuinely poor people, and at the time this was passed, it was almost exclusively Southern Democrats who were saying this. So when you say really genuinely poor people, what they meant was black people would not have the means to access any kind because they couldn't afford that 20%. That's why it was put in there. The fact of the matter is people who make enough money that they don't care about the 20% or have enough assets, they're not going to get less healthcare or be more careful about their use of healthcare. And the people who can't afford it at all are not going to make that decisions because they're not getting any healthcare at all, even if they have Medicaid. So there's a very small band, actually, a very narrow band of people for whom that 20% is sufficiently consequential that it's going to change their healthcare decisions. And generally, it changes them in ways that are actually destructive to society. This is a public health issue. We want people to get well. We want them to get diagnosed early. We want them to, even if they're wrong, that they don't have cancer, that they just have a cold, we want them to get that checked out. So there is no rational argument for the whole skin in the game thing other than that. And when you go back to the, the early history of healthcare in the United States, modern medicine became modern medicine in the period between 1870 and 1900. It was when medicine became real and you couldn't just hang a shingle out and say that you were a doctor accrediting organizations like the American Medical Association came into being during that period. And during that time, there was this fellow by the name of Frederick Hoffman, who was a German immigrant who came to the United States and married a girl from Georgia and adopted her racist perspective. He wrote a book called Race Tendencies of the American Negro that proposed that African-Americans, Blacks, were so genetically inferior that if we simply denied them health care, they would eventually die out. And that would solve the race problem in America. And he not only wrote this book, he became a vice president of the Prudential Insurance Company. And from the early 1900s through the 1930s, traveled all over the United States, giving speeches and lectures about his theory that we needed to deny health care to black people to deal with the race problem in America. He testified before Congress to this effect. He wrote numerous pamphlets and booklets that went along with his book, Race Tendencies. He was kind of singularly the force that made sure that America never got a national health care system in the 30s, the 40s. He died in 1946. Um, in the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. I mean, his influence was echoing through America in the 50s and 60s even. He was still being quoted aggressively when John Kennedy in 1961 proposed a national healthcare system. And people were throwing Hoffman at it. And like I said, in 67, when Lyndon Johnson did Medicare, 
It was Hoffman's theories that were being cited by Southern white senators to put that 20% gap into Medicare so that even poor elderly African-Americans would not be able to get health care, all for the goal of trying to wipe out Black people in America. It's so vile. It was so explicit. They were so proud of it, these guys. You know, Woodrow Wilson, the Democratic president who screened Birth of a Nation in the White House, you know, the the Klan recruiting film, and the first full-length motion picture ever made and distributed in the United States, loved Frederick Hoffman. I mean, it was just, it was so pernicious and it was so extent. And, and of course, Wilson was also a big fan of eugenics, of sterilizing women who were mentally retarded or who had any kind of deformities or who were Black or Native American. We sterilized lots and lots of people, particularly Native Americans. When I lived up in Vermont, the Abenaki tribe wanted to get tribal recognition, and they went before the state Supreme Court. And the court ruled that because in the 1950s, as a result of a 30-year forced sterilization program, they called them painful DNC or painful vaginal exams, but it was forced sterilization. Because of this forced sterilization program, the state proclaimed that all the Abenaki had died out. So that was the official position. They couldn't get tribal status. And they were, they were standing right there in front of the judge. But he was like, well, this is the law. These are so I think a lot of people, particularly younger people today, have no idea how extensive racism was in the United States, this thing that Hoffman referred to as scientific racism, and how widely accepted it was in the white community. You know, right up until, in a big way, really, right up until the, I would say, the 1990s. As if it was gone yet. So again, Frederick Hoffman, by what you just said about him, he would appear to be one of the most, not just vile, but how could he be that ignorant? The problem is he has some good credentials and made some good decisions. He, I think the beginnings of science related to asbestos or smoking or other things, he actually was good at actuarial science. He should have been able to give us some good guidance. He was a numbers guy. And yes, in fact, he wrote a book that's still in print about what causes cancer. And he found that there's a statistical correlation between high rates of cancer and a diet that was low in fresh fruits and vegetables. And he also found that there was a statistical correlation between exposure to asbestos and and lung cancer and mesothelioma and smoking and lung cancer. He found all those things, identified all those things and became quite famous as a result of But with regard to those things, he was correct about the correlation and causation equation. When it came to race, he correctly pointed out that African-Americans died younger, you know, were sicker, were more likely to have higher levels of infant mortality and maternal mortality. I mean, all the problems he correctly identified. But he assumed that they were, because they were Black, having to do with genes and how their bodies worked, when in fact, being Black just means you have a gene that makes the pigment of your skin slightly darker. You have more melanin in your skin, but it doesn't affect you know, how your liver or kidneys or, or pancreas works. Those are things that are affected by diet and the world in which you live, principally nutrition and access to medical care. And those were being deprived to Black people back then, still are to a large extent. We have food deserts now. And the result of that lack of availability of fresh fruits and vegetables leads to those higher rates of disease and cancer that Hoffman identified that he thought were caused by being Black, but actually were caused by systemic racism. 
Folks, we are speaking with Tom Hartman about the hidden history of American healthcare, why sickness bankrupts you and makes others insanely rich. It's an excellent book. And in a short number of pages, he brings up so much history and statistics and insights that your life is only going to be better and more wisely guided if you avail yourself of the hidden history of American healthcare. Thank you. Well, I just speak the truth. You know how it is. That's my Quaker belief is that it's more important to speak the truth than just what I believe. You do a good job of highlighting the reasons behind things. You just mentioned how Frederick Hoffman effectively prevented national health care. But you mentioned John F. Kennedy, you know, 1961. Here he is saying, well, maybe it's time to do national health care. Barack Obama going for office 2008. And there's two years there where the Democrats controlled both the Senate and the House. And yet it didn't get passed. Not only did we not get single payer, but the ACA that we did get is so complex. It made it possible for a number of states not to cover a lot of people. It left giant holes there. I have a, a chapter that identifies it as a Rube Goldberg device, which yes. probably younger people don't know what that means. But And you give special blame to Joe Lieberman. So he should be put up on some, there probably should be some statue to him, I don't know, in hell or wherever before this. Uh, why did Joe Lieberman have such leverage? Because he was the deciding vote for the Democrats. Congress was very, very tightly, very evenly divided the Senate. And uh, he was the, the swing vote and he had taken over a million dollars from the health insurance industry. So he was not going to let them have uh, his, his vote. Actually, this wasn't even on single payer. This was on whether we would allow people to buy into Medicare, what's referred to as the public option, who are under 65, which would have been huge. But Joe Lieberman killed that. So public option versus single payer versus socialism. And I'd like to point out for folks who are listening to Spirit in Action today, the U.S. has socialized medical care for anybody who's part of the military. That is pure socialism. That is to say, yeah, when England went to socialized medicine, they actually went that route. That is to say the doctors are employed by the government. And the hospitals are owned by the government. And the hospitals are owned by the government, which is very different than single payer. Single payer says the government's going to pay for this to whichever institution does the work. So I see the VA as being pure socialized medicine. It is. And I see Medicare, which I'm now on, as being single payer, at least half rear end single payer, I think. Now, Medicare is a single payer system. It's just got a hole carved in, that's all. But you're on Medicare Advantage, which is not Medicare. It's actually a privatized health insurance program that is allowed to use the word Medicare. But the systems in our federal government that administer Medicare have nothing to do with Medicare Advantage. And by the way, you point this out in the book, Tom, and everybody should know this. They want to get you invested in Medicare Advantage. And then there's only limited times or situations in which you can switch out to that you can go to is because I want to be on your plan, right? I'll yeah. pay my couple hundred a month and we'll have 100%. I recommend coverage. it. <laughs> I, what are the limitations? I don't recall the exact dates, but somewhere like the middle of October to the middle of January, there's a two or three month window there that's called the enrollment period. When you can sign up for Medicare, it, you don't do it on your birthday when you turn 65, or during which time you can change policies. You can get off Medicare Advantage and get on Medicare, get off Medicare and go on Medicare Advantage. And that's why during that period in the early winter every year, you see 
all these ads with you know Joe Namath and uh, Jimmy, what's his name, pitching Medicare Advantage. Your point of view, at least the the wisdom you've been able to see financially and behaviorally, is get on Medicare, Medicare Part H, or whatever you say, which has a means you're paying a premium each month, right? Right. Yeah. Get real Medicare is my opinion. And I've had people call into the show. I'll talk about this on the air. And I have people call in and say, "Well, I've been on Medicare Advantage for two years, and I've had no problems at all." And I say, "Well, have you had any bills?" Well, no, I just go to the doctor occasionally. Well, just wait till you get sick. You're going to discover that you're still with privatized health insurance. They are going to require pre-clearance before they pay anything. And Medicare doesn't do that. You know, I've never had to call anybody in the last five years. So folks, keep that in mind when you're looking at it, either for yourself, for your parents, your grandparents. It's just a, a wiser way to do the situation. And because of Tom Hartman, I'm going to be looking at that in a couple months. But by the time his book comes out, and by the time you hear this, it'll be about a, a week maybe before his book is released, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. Go out and get it. You're going to be a little bit wiser when you read his book. And and if you listen to him on his radio program, so a couple more things. Wendell Potter. If we didn't talk about Wendell Potter, we would be omitting something very important. Why do should people know Wendell Potter's name? Oh, you should have Wendell on your show, Mark. He's wonderful. Wendell was a very well-paid vice president, senior executive with one of the big health insurance companies, one of the big three or big five or whatever they call themselves. Finally, his company refused to pay for a liver transplant for a, a little teenage girl that he had gotten to know. And he was so horrified by this that he quit and became a whistleblower. And he's written two books about that. And he also now runs a nonprofit dedicated to making healthcare available to everybody in the United States. He's a wonderful man, you know, who had a crisis of conscience, having been working in a parasitic predatory industry. So on your advice, I will be reaching out and contacting Wendell Potter and getting him here. On I think WendellPotter.com will, will get you right to it. I've got to read a couple of books, though. When you have people on your shows, do you always read their books? I rarely read their entire books. I always try to spend at least a half hour or an hour with them, but I don't do that many author interviews. Well, I'll just so I make it clear to you, I did read every page and the footnotes for the hidden history of American healthcare. You know, one out of 30 people who interviewed me actually read the book. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, I know. And it's not necessary. There are publicists who will feed me lists of questions I can ask and all that. And sometimes people have employees, but that's not the way I work because I believe actually in personal relationship and dealing with people about facts and what we know face to face. So well, it's nice to know what you're talking about, too. One would think, huh? Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, like you, I'm widely, what do they call it, polymath. So I know a couple languages and I've studied physics and chemistry and math. I've taught physics at university level. So it's not just talking that I know about. So I actually consider it a privilege to be able to be educated about healthcare or democracy or monopolies or any of the other subjects that Tom Hartman covers. So please, folks, educate yourself. There's a reason why in the formation of this country that the fourth estate, the press, was so important, so prioritized that that could be the real source of a democracy. The only industry in the Constitution. Yeah. And so, please, that depends on your willingness to be informed, educated, and make good decisions. Because if we allow it, there are special interests. And in this case, the healthcare system, there's a number of them who want to control the government, not in the people's favor. And government of, by, and for the people can disappear from the face of the earth if we're not vigilant. 
So John Adams, he was a bad egg early up in 1797, the first act that was related to socialized medicine in the United States. If we're going to follow the founding fathers, as all the conservatives claim they're doing, doesn't that mean that we're going to get into national health care? Well, that was for sailors, as I recall. Well, yeah, well, that's just once. <laughs> as soon as you do it for sailors, you got to do it for landlubbers, too, you know? Yeah, well, the theory was that while there was a huge debate that had started around the time of the Constitution, the writing of the Constitution, and, and continued right through, it actually ended in 1815 after the War of 1812, but there was a huge debate about whether we should have a standing army during times of peace. Both Adams and Jefferson were opposed to a standing army during times of peace. And that's why in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8 says that there's only one entity where Congress's ability to raise taxes and spend money is limited. And that is that they may not authorize money for the army for more than two years. Every two years, Congress has to meet and decide whether to continue having an army. But there was no debate about the Navy. Their concern about the army was because armies overthrow governments. Navies don't overthrow governments. And the navies are defensive, largely. So seeing the Navy as one of the most critical pieces of American infrastructure, John Adams wanted to make sure that people in the Navy were healthy. Didn't do it for the Army. <laughs> Just the Navy. <laughs> well, was that before the Marines existed? Because the Marines yeah. are Navy, but, you know, I mean, they're water, but I, you know what I mean? Yes. They're, the, they're the Army on the water. Yeah. Actually, I'm not sure when the Marine Corps was, was founded. I, I'm, I'm no scholar of military history. I'm sorry. Nor am I. Let's talk about where we want to go and how we get there. And from a lot of points of view, I was opposed to the ACA when it was passed, because I actually do think that requiring people to buy something from a private insurance agency is wrong. I think we should not be mandated to enrich any business, right? On that basis, I was opposed to ACA. I was covered by the ACA then for a number of years because I had been diagnosed as having rheumatoid arthritis. And so nobody else was going to cover me in a reasonable way. So ACA was important to me. And so I think it was a very good step. My hope was ACA would lead to single payer. People would get used to the idea that government can do a pretty good job of this. They're doing it pretty decent or much better idea than what we had before for people over 65 or for the military or so on. Why not go to it? So I was hoping ACA would lead to the next step. The Republicans did everything they could to trip that up. And fortunately, the Supreme Court has not struck down the mandate, which is the thing I think is most questionable about it. Uh, where do we go from here in terms of having good health care in the United States? I suspect that what we will do is what Canada did back in the, I think it was in the 60s. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact year. Tommy Douglas was the head of the province, their equivalent of a governor for Saskatchewan. And he put into place a single-payer health insurance program for everybody in Saskatchewan. It was so popular that other provinces said, hey, we want something like that. And so they started doing it as well. And it started, and it just spread across Canada. And then eventually, within a decade, I think, or maybe a generation, the federal government jumped in and said, no, we're going to play in this game too. Although it's still, you know, different provinces have different benefits and different expenses. So it's still very decentralized, even you know, although it's backstopped by the federal government. And Vermont tried to do that. And California has tried to do that here in the United States. In both cases, they passed legislative initiatives, making it possible. And the problem that in both cases they ran up against was that our federal law says that individual states, if they set up their own health insurance system, may not use Medicare or Medicaid money. 
So Medicaid money pays for poor people, Medicare pays for older people, which means that the state would have to take on the full burden of the expense of the state's poor people and the state's older people and pay for it out of whatever tax base they have. And that just made it impossible. So there's a couple of ways around this. The, main, the easiest one is a piece of legislation that Congressman Ro Khan and a bunch of others have sponsored repeatedly that just does away with that prohibition and says that, you know, if a state does a single payer program and they've got 100,000 people on Medicare, that 100,000 people's money, were, you know, value of Medicare can just pass through the state instead of just being stopped. Because right now, Medicare has to be a personal relationship between me and the federal government, and the state government has nothing to say about it. And the same with Medicaid, or not entirely the same, because states administer Medicaid money, but it's a convoluted way. So if they can get that change made at the federal level, my guess is that California and Vermont will very quickly go to single payer, and that probably Oregon and Washington state will follow within a matter of months. Then behind them will probably come New York and New Jersey. And, you know, we'll see. Connecticut, maybe, maybe not. A bunch of insurance companies are based there. But it'll eventually spread across the country. That's my guess as to how it could happen and probably how it should happen. I think that would be the most organic. And that way you have the individual states being the old laboratories of democracy. You know, they get to figure out what works and what doesn't work and learn from each other's experiences as Canada has done. Yeah, it, it does make sense to me that one size fits all doesn't work really well with each state. Yeah. I'm really enchanted to think that Saskatchewan was what led Canada in that direction, since Saskatchewan is the backwaters as far as most Canadians are considered. Yeah, it's like Idaho. Right. <laughs> right. And and yet they're the, <laughs> they're the lights that are leading forward. I, I love finding inspiration in unusual places. You're not an unusual place, though, to find inspiration. And folks, remember, Tom Hartman, follow the links on NordenSpiritRadio.org or just do a search. And remember, Tom is T-H-O-M and Hartman has two N's. And so Tom Hartman, his latest book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. Only one of the 30 some books that he's put out there, listen to him for three hours each day. And again, you're going to be better informed. I think you're going to be able to make wiser decisions and you're going to be enchanted by a really compassionate and thoughtful person. So please do take your opportunities to read and listen to Tom Hartman whenever you get the chance. And Tom, thank you so much. And I give you a big thanks again from Peter Bastunas, the guy I met on vacation a couple of weeks ago. Just one of many people, millions of people that you touch across this country. Thank you for doing that work and for sharing your voice today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. And thank you again for having me back on your program and for the great work that you're doing with Spirit in Action. And, and let me recommend to your listeners that if you get value from Spirit in Action, I'm sure you, you wouldn't be listening if you didn't. Support the program. <laughs> and, and Mark can tell you how to do that. Thank you, Mark. Yes. Thanks again so much. And folks, we'll have Tom Hartman back about his next book called The Hidden History of Big Brother, Corporate and Government Snoops. That'll be in six months. Don't hold your breath waiting for it, but he will be back here and we will have another great conversation with him. But in any case, we will be here and hope to join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. 
guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Our lives will feel the echo of our healing.